to this episode of the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Brian Lomax. And I'm Josh Berger. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss the topic of motivation. Now, this is certainly an important topic across sports or really um, across performance in general. Um, but particularly within tennis, um, it's, it's important to know your reasons for why you play and to, um, to always find a way to be motivated um, w- whether it's in a match or longer term, um, as an athlete. Um, and, uh, to me, one of the big reasons, and I, I know we'll uh, dive a little bit deeper into this is that tennis is really not a game of perfect. Um, and a course of a tennis match, there are always the ups and downs. Um, even in a, in a season, there are always plenty of ups and downs. Novak Djokovic, uh, number one player in the world. Uh, I believe last year he won 55% of his points. Um, points over the course of a year, which means there's a lot of won points and there's a lot of lost points. And that ability to be able to come back from points lost and also from matches lost, which are inevitable at any level, um, is is really critical. So having that um, that motivation inside, having a very clear reason for why you do what you do um, on the tennis court as a tennis player, um, or really as you know any sort of athlete or performer in general is um, extremely important uh, to, to have a very clear uh, clear reason for why you do what you do. Um, so uh, as we dive a little bit deeper into this, uh, Brian, uh, how would you um, start to break down this topic of, of motivation? I think a good way to begin, Josh, would be, let's, let's just look at a general dictionary definition yep. of motivation and maybe we can build from there. So uh, you know, a dictionary definition of motivation would be the reason to act a certain way or take a specific action. And in your introduction there, you can certainly see that. Um, but what is sort of, I think, uh, is interesting about the concept of motivation is the sort of the driver of motivation or, you know, where, where are we sort of uh, getting the rewards of uh, our efforts, because those can drive different sorts of, of behaviors. And I think, you know, I think it would be a good idea for us today to maybe talk about motivation in, in, in some academic terms and relate it back to tennis. Um, because I do think that this is like a complicated or at least a multidimensional type of concept. Um, I have players do motivation exercises, usually written exercises, and I'm sure you do something similar. And sometimes what happens with those exercises is the player doesn't really get below the surface very much. They need some prompting to understand. And that's fine. That's probably part of our role is to help them. If we think of it almost like an onion where we're peeling back various layers there. And so I would encourage everybody who's listening, when you begin to think about motivation, we want to be thinking about you know deeper and deeper levels. The more one writes about it, I think the more that more clarity that will come. So uh, I thought we could talk, Josh, perhaps about some of the different sources of motivation, um, the different places that they come from, and um, you know probably a, a good starting point there would be on the difference between. And this is basic. There are definitely things in between here, but intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. So again, those are academic terms. And the way I like to think of this sort of continuum of motivation is this is the source of the reward. Right. Right. Um, You know, there might, you know, when we talk about sort of the driver, that's going to be different. But the source of the reward is either intrinsic or extrinsic. And so if we think about the reward being intrinsic, it's really coming 100% from you. You're doing this because you want it, you love it, you have a passion about it. When you excel, the most important thing to you is sort of that self-satisfaction and that pride that you, that you feel. Um, and we know that this is actually the longest sort of burning motivation. It's the best version of motivation to have. But as I said earlier, this is a continuum. No one is at like a hundred percent. I mean, that that's, I would say that's pretty hard, especially in a sport like tennis. I think it, I think it can often start like that. And then as, 
as you play longer and longer and you know get better and better i think other other sorts of factors get get thrown into the play more on the extrinsic side yeah not that extrinsic is necessarily bad yep um maybe if you're too far skewed on that it would be but let's face it even um you know the top players they may be playing for um for improvement but there's some aspect of hey everybody likes to win everyone uh, you know it's nice to get a little trophy or whatever um so it's not that uh, that's it's even bad to have some sort of extrinsic outside rewards coming into play it's i think from a tennis perspective can we get the right balance so that we're not overly focused on those rewards so what what are your thoughts on that josh in terms of tennis and and a, a good balance of of these two motivational sources yeah i mean i would say that generally when people start playing the sport, it's for intrinsic reason. They enjoy it. They want um, they they, they want to uh, see how how well they can play. Um, they maybe it's for exercise or you know wh- whatever their initial reason to play is generally not extrinsic. Um, but as you know, people compete more and more. Um, as I said, you know, I, these outside factors, these extrinsic factors and extrinsic motivations often um, start to, to play a role. So I, I would say, um, as you said, it doesn't extrinsic rewards are not not negative. Um, and I think, you know, especially as you look at the higher levels of the game, the professional levels, even college levels or uh, competitive juniors that are playing tournaments, um, it, it often has, you know, their, their reasons for playing. Um, at, at least the, the, the first things they might mention might be the ranking, the, the money, the fame, things, things like that. But, I, but then if you, if you get a little bit deeper from there, you find that, um, the, you know, the, the, the reasons for some of those, um, you know, for let, let's say the, the ranking, um, has to do with that inner success, you know, really, um, achieving a certain level of success uh, or um, achievement or, or things things like that. So it, to me, I, I often find that these extrinsic factors, or maybe it's the trophy, but really that that shows that um, that's you know that really demonstrates to their parents or to themselves even that they've made it and that they have um, you know achieved a certain level of performance. Um, so I, I think you know I I, I don't I, I believe that. When somebody's is solely uh, motivated by extrinsic factors, that it can certainly be a problem. Um, but having a combination of the two, and I think if you dig a little bit deeper into some of those extrinsic factors, um, it, it really does still come from within, oftentimes. Yeah, yeah. I think also, you know, one extrinsic piece of motivation that even when we first begin, uh, I would say that people enjoy is just being praised for doing something. Yep. It's an outside factor, right? It's not, um, and, and, you know, even like kids, when they first begin tennis, uh, a lot of how they perceive their ability comes from um, coaches and other adults that they know are, you know, involved in their tennis. Um, So it's not just their own self-perception. So the, in fact, it's probably the major sources really coming from, from the adults. So even I think uh, early on, there's, it may not be about trophies. They may not be competing, but if I say, Hey, Josh, hey, great job today. That's, that's, you know what, that's, that is something that we all enjoy and that can be motivating for me to come back. Absolutely. Along with also the fact that yeah, I find this fun. I want to see if I can get, get better. Um, and so I think, you know, as we go through some of these things, we'll notice that, you know, the ones that begin with E, like extrinsic and external, also tend to be a little bit more ego involved. And yep. I think that'll be a good distinction for us to make. So so that's kind of like the source of the reward. I think the next distinction we should go down is the source of the driver. And this is often, you know, who is really the one getting me or the player to go out there and train, to go out and play. Is that coming you know, totally from me internally or is there some outside force? You know, whether that be parents or coaches or, or something else. 
And I think it's it's good for us to think about, okay, where, where is that coming from? Um, because again, that internal driver is probably going to be the one that can sustain us the longest. Sure. And whenever I think of external driving, I always think of these like college basketball coaches and football coaches who are, you know, you see them yelling at their players, right? And that they're like, they're saying they're doing that because they got to motivate these guys. And that may work to a certain extent. It may get them really motivated kind of in a short term moment, but that tends to, to, um, you know, tail off in its effectiveness. Um, I don't know that we necessarily see that kind of thing normally from tennis coaches. Uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't happen, though, um, in terms of people being pushed. So, like, you know, when you think of the source of the driver, Josh, you know, what's your experience with this and, um, you know, and how that works with the tennis players you've worked with? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, I think it's interesting. I think um, as tennis players get more and more serious, particularly junior tennis players, um, it's often it's often, as we've talked about in this podcast, it's often a, a team effort and they, they've sort of built a team around them between their parents, between their coach. Um, maybe they have, you know, sports psychology professional that they're working with, um, nu- nutritional coach, you know, nutritionist or whatever, whatever it may be. They, um, you know, somebody that does uh, fitness, um, but they, they've established a team around them and other people are invested in the results, even if they don't, like to think about it that way, even if, you know, they're, they're the team around them, you know, makes it clear that, you know, it's on them if they, you know, however long they want to play, um, they get to call the shots and, you know, make the decisions. Ultimately that their parents are still, you know, their parents, their coach, their, that whole team around them are investing in them. They're investing time. There's often a financial commitment, particularly for the parents. Um, and that, 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 that is a, often a factor at play where if a kid, let's say, isn't enjoying the sport anymore and reaches a point where maybe they don't want to play, the parent might say, hey, I, think about everything, you know, everything I've done for you or we've done for you over this past five years, 10 years. We've, you know, driven you to all these tournaments. We've paid for all these lessons. Um, you know, we've given up our weekends. Um, so it's and, – and then – at a certain point, oftentimes the kid is, you know, whether it, it, it becomes unclear whether they're truly playing for themselves or for, you know, some of the people that are surrounding them. You also see it at times, you know, it's the parents that are sort of, um, you know, wanting wanting the kids to, to live out some of these um, unfulfilled dreams or, you know. Um, living through them vicariously. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I think it, it, it gets complicated, um, frankly, um, as, as people, as tennis players get more and more serious. And I think, you know, we're talking about junior tennis players. And I think at the professional level, even, even more so when there's, you know, when there's money on the line. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's the, it, it should, it should fall on the, the athlete, the performer themselves, but oftentimes when they're surrounded by a team, it's, um, there's a lot of stakeholders, you could say. Well, I think you bring up a, a good point that I hadn't really thought about before, but you kind of helped crystallize it a little bit more is that this, if you are on like a performance team, like this needs to be discussed as part of the team. Absolutely. And understood that way. Um, because if you do get into that situation where it's, uh, you know, there's 100% pressure coming from people on the team and the player is not having any sort of internal drive, um, they have to know what the dynamics are of that. Yeah. Um, and, and there needs to be discussion. So I think that's actually a really good point that if let's say you or I were working with a performance team, this is probably something we would educate them on is understanding what that driving is, you know, and we'll get into a little bit later. I think about, I think this actually fits in pretty nicely with some aspects of self-determination theory um, and sort of the autonomy and ownership aspect, because we're really asking the player here to own that drive more, right? And I think that that's, that's useful. It's useful for the whole team to, to, to understand. Yeah, and as we get into adult players, um, 
you know, and you you do a lot of uh, you know, I think you do some lessons with adults. You know, and so you 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 may find yourself in the position of being the motivator at times, yeah. even in adult tennis. Absolutely, certain days where they're you know, I I do find in you know I I question um in my own coaching is is this you know is this something short term um, or long term um, you know some sometimes having to play the role of that. Um, college football or basketball coach and say, come on, like, you know, push through, like, let, let's be moving our feet here. Like, you know, even if you're woke up on the wrong side of the bed today, or you're a little tired um, or w- whatever it is, didn't get enough sleep. Um, like, let, let's go. Like we've got 60 minutes here. Like let's make, let's make the most of it. Um, where that, that really to me is more of a bandaid and like, let's get through this lesson. Let's, you know, make the most of this time rather than, you know, trying to dig a little deeper and really figure out, you know, what's your reason for being out here in the first place? What do you want from, from playing, which is, you know, and which is something that um, generally I would try to talk about earlier, you know, talk, talk about um, sort of that during that initial meeting or that, you know, whether it's on the court, whether it's um, talking with an athlete virtually, but um, you know, the first time I talked to them, like, Hey, why, why do you play? Why do you do what you do? What's, you know, why did you start playing? What do you enjoy about it? Um, so some of these more, I guess, deeper philosophical questions to, to really dig into that motivation. Um, but I mean, sometimes, as you said, sometimes with adults, they have a lot of other things going on in their lives. And um, this one hour, you know, we, we want to make the most of this. I might not see them for another week after that or another month, who knows? Um, so Sometimes you got to get them into the present moment, into what's going on right now. And um, a little bit of uh, that quick fix, that Band-Aid um, is, is definitely helpful. Yeah. And, you know, we might be talking about adults who are maybe a little less experienced competitive-wise, but there are also a lot of adults who are older um, who play, you know, high-level, senior, national, international events and the one thing I've noticed about them, and perhaps it's because of their journey, they're still playing, you know, when they're over 45 or 50, that they are really good at internally driving themselves. There's not a lot of um, – there certainly can be some external, but, you know, in, in a lot of the senior players I know also work with a coach to a certain extent. So there is some pushing of that, but it's almost like that's the reason they hired the coach is that they know – they need that little extra. Um, it's yep. sort of like, you know, when I was training a few years ago, um, I'm not a huge, like, I'm not, I don't love working out. I don't really enjoy that aspect of things. So, because if I were to go to the gym, this would happen frequently. I would go, have all these grand plans for everything I'd be doing there. And after about 20 minutes, I'm like, ah, you know, I think I've done enough. You know, I'm, probably good or I got something else to do and I'd get out of there. Um, And so I knew that about myself. And so that was one of the reasons I hired a trainer is, you know, the fact that I was paying money was motivating, but, but also the, the person, Sure. you know, he or she was pushing me to do those things. So sometimes, you know, when we're thinking about external motivation, it's not a, again, a hundred percent negative, it might be, you know, if we know our own limitations, it might be wise to, to fill a gap like that. And you may need that in your coach. You may need that in your trainer or, or, or even a sports psych. I'm glad that you brought up the part about, um, you know, understanding why you play. I think a big part of like what we want to get out of today is helping people really understand their purpose and passion with the sport of yeah. tennis. And, um, Asking them why they started is, I think, is a really good idea. Um, I often I call it like your origin story. You know, like what, what, how did you begin, and and why did you choose? Sure. Your 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 sport, um, because I think that many of us come at it with multiple sports, and we could have chosen different avenues, but for some reason, you know, you and I chose tennis. Uh, people listening to this chose tennis, and it, it's always a really interesting. Um, thing to understand. So I'm curious, Josh, I'm going to put it on you. How did you get started? 
and why did you choose tennis? It's a good question. So, um, started playing, well, really started, um, a little bit recreationally when I was younger, but really was into a lot of different sports, like played, uh, baseball, played basketball, played soccer, and I enjoyed all of them, but none of them really stuck where it was like, this is something that I want to do all the time. Um, and then when I found tennis, but not, not like really the first time I'd played or anything, I used to just hit around with my dad or really my parents a little bit, um, very recreationally, but the sort of when I started playing, um, in a clinic and played in a group in a more structured way, um, it stuck. I, I, I felt that this was something that, um, I was able to excel at, um, much more so than some of the team sports. Um, I also grew up with a ping pong table in my house um, from the time I was born. So maybe the hand-eye coordination from ping pong carried over a little bit. Um, and, you know, from playing ping pong and everything growing up, the, um, you know, playing another racket sport, I think, appealed to me. And I enjoyed that process. Um, and then once I started, um, you know, playing more, started meeting um, more friends, you know, through, through the sport as well um, playing tournaments and everything, and then starting to really like the, the competitive aspect of the sport and, uh, you know, traveling to tournaments and so, and pushing myself to see, um, you know, how high of a level I could compete at and reach within my own game. Um, and then, you know, later going into coaching and sports psychology. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's kind of how it all started. I would say through finding a sport, you know, I think part of it was the individual aspect, but, finding a sport that, that really suited me that I was almost addicted to um, and a sport that I really felt that I could excel at and push myself to be as good as I could be rather than um, some of these other sports that I enjoyed, but never really felt that I wanted to, you know, see how high of a level I could perform at. It was sort of about being on the team and, you know, are we going to win this game today, but not about how, well, can I play? How well, how good is my jump shot? How good, is, you know, how good of a batter am I? But if I was another team and we won, that was, that was great. Um, but with tennis, it all fell on me. So if I lose, you know, it, some, you know, you, you might make excuses, but deep down, you know, that person on the other side of the net was better, was better than me today or, or vice versa. Um, so that that's kind of how it started for me. And um, I, I think I've heard your, your origin story um, a little bit, but would love to, uh, to learn a little bit more about it. Yeah. I started when I was six. Um, we belonged to a swim and tennis club and this is back in the seventies. So tennis was super, super popular. It was yep. like booming then. And um, I like to say that, you know, the reason I really got into tennis is because I failed my advanced beginner swimming lessons and I swore off swimming. So tennis is the only other thing we could do. Uh, so I was six and I don't remember a whole lot about how much I enjoyed it, to be honest, but I think I must have because then around age eight, um, that's when I really kind of start to remember more. Um, I actually made one of the tennis teams at the club. Now, um, I think there were like four teams. There was like A1, A2, B1, and B2. So I made B2, whatever, you know, the lowest level, age eight. Um, and it was just, it was just so much fun. There were so many kids playing. Um, we had, they actually, the club had to hire someone to do signups just for the kids' courts. And we could only get a half hour at a time. Wow. And, and we got four courts during the day. And, but there was also a backboard. So I was constantly, if I wasn't on the court, I was on the backboard. Um, and I actually have this black and white photo from 1978 when I was 10. And it must have almost 50 kids at this small club on the tennis team. This didn't, this wasn't beginners or anything else. These were all kids who played on the club team and we would wow. play other clubs in the area. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I just loved it, just being in that environment. And we went to that club every single day. Um, and around, I would say, 10 to 11, there was like a huge jump. And that's when I started playing. Back then, it was called Nelta tournaments, so USTA New England. 
Um, and so that's when I started getting into that, and yeah, my game really developed, and uh, it just kind of went from there. And I, I think my next big jump was my freshman year of high school. So between freshman year and sophomore year, I went from number four on the team to number one on the team, and it, the whole top four had returned. So um, basically that summer totally jumped, and I actually didn't even have a hard time beating any of so it was really, I'm not sure how that happened, but uh, just a lot of match play and so forth. And, and my career sort of, you know, gone from there. Um, I think the reason I chose it over some of the other sports, I did like the individual aspect, but I also think my coach experiences, especially in baseball, were not 100% positive. Yeah. So um, I think that was the biggest thing. I was a serious baseball player. Um. But in the end, I remember like when I was 13, I was playing on uh, our all-star team for our town. And I just remember asking my parents, would you mind if I didn't play baseball anymore? Like I thought they'd be – I thought I'd be letting them down by, you know, by quitting. And they were like, no, no. We want you to do what you want to do. It's like, all right. I don't really want to play baseball anymore. Yep. And I would say it was almost 100% just because of the coaching stuff. Not that the coaches were awful. And some maybe when I was younger there were, but um, – and that doesn't mean there wasn't in tennis. I mean, I remember having this crazy Australian coach when we were 12 um, who would just like line us up against the wall and like hit serves at us and just yell at us constantly. It was, just, it was yeah. probably – you know, today this would not be tolerated at all. But uh, I did not enjoy that clinic, so I left that club. <laughs> so it can happen in every sport. And, and, and I actually did think about quitting tennis because of that. Um, so I was just the kind of kid who was very sensitive to the right sort of coach mm-hmm. athlete relationship, you know, and I'm not sure we'll get into that today, but that, that certainly is a, a, a part of motivation is, is, you know, having that social support and having a good coach athlete relationship. Absolutely. Um, and before I forget, I'm, I'm assuming the LT and Nelta it was lot was lawn tennis. Lawn tennis, that's right. There we go. Um, but no, I, I uh, your your origin story actually jogged a couple things in my mind as I think back to sort of where I spent a bulk of my time um, growing up, really between you know ten and fifteen or sixteen, um, as you know, sort of went from a very recreational player to somebody that was playing tournaments almost every weekend. Um, but number one, you talked about a backboard. I didn't have a backboard per se, but the side of my house yeah, with, I used the, that too. with the driveway yeah. um, was, was my backboard and uh, actually broke a couple windows um, <laughs> because of that. Um, but uh, no, that you definitely would spend a ton of time there and also um, moved around a couple different clubs, but um, one club in particular that, um, you know, Played a lot of time at every Saturday night, um, really in middle school and even in the beginning of high school, they would have a round robin tournament there. Um, it's Trumbull Racket Club, by the way, um, and uh, used to used to play these Saturday night tournaments every, you know, almost every week. And uh, you know, sort of put in my uh, put in my time there. Really enjoyed the process. Um, I think some of it, you know, we go back to that internal external some of it was the winning or the the trophy winning winning these small trophies um and sort of showing that you know i could win matches um i think it certainly helped my game a lot and i think i sort of developed more and more of a passion for it um through those experiences as well um so and and also also coaching i mean I, i consider myself very fortunate to have been around um you know been been coached by a number of great coaches um, and you know, not only did I want to perform my, my very best for myself, um, uh, to show how good I could be and, you know, what level I could get to or for my parents, um, knowing that they, you know, had put a lot of time and money into my development, but also my coaches did, definitely didn't want to let them down. Uh, you know, felt very grateful for the time that they, um, had dedicated towards me. So wanted, um, you know, to, to sort of show them, um, you know, the, the, the type of level I could play at. Um, what one of the, these coaches in particular, he would always say, be all you can be. And I was, I, I think I still think back to that and 
try to be, you know, all I can be both on the tennis court and, and elsewhere. So I think, as you said, a coach can have a, a huge impact for, um, for motivation and for, um, helping, you know, ha- helping athletes to, to want to achieve great things. Yeah. And I think that's why understanding the academic side of motivation is very helpful for coaches Yep. so that they understand the dynamic and how they can best create that, you know, what we often call the motivational climate. Uh, cause that is, that is super important. And I think, you know, that makes me think about how I mentioned it earlier, self-determination theory. I mean, that certainly goes into that, um, the motivational climate, how we create that. But it also goes into like when we're starting to think about what is the best way for us to motivate ourselves or to drive ourselves. And um, so let me, I'll just give like a high level um, explanation of, of self-determination theory. So it's quite a popular theory in, in psychology developed by um, Richard Ryan and Edward Dacey and basically says that uh, once people move beyond sort of the basic needs such as food, safety, security, there are some higher level psychological needs that we, um, we all have this need to fulfill. And three of them are really important when it comes to motivation. And they are autonomy, competence, and relatedness. And we often will talk a lot about the autonomy piece first because what we mean by autonomy is some level of ownership, some level of control. Um, and so when we're talking about like teams, um, and we, I think we even talked about this when we, when we interviewed Bob Dallas, the idea of setting up an autonomy supportive environment where the players – have some ownership of maybe how we train today or what we'll work on today, or they may run certain aspects of the practice. And that way they feel more engaged in it. They feel like they've got some ownership, some say in that. And so we all want to have that too. Even as individual players, we want to have some sort of control or, or take some ownership over what we're doing on the court. And that could be as simple as, you know, if I go train in a clinic um, I want to set some of my own goals today, right? I want to get that. Um, and that could then go with the next piece, which is uh, competence. And we all, as human beings, have a need to feel like we're good at something. And we want to be able to pursue that. And it doesn't have to just be one thing. But I think for all of us who are listening, you've chosen tennis as one of those things that you are pursuing to be competent. You are pursuing mastery. Now, we may never get to, you know, there are different definitions of mastery. So we may never become a master of the sport, but we're, we're in pursuit of that, right? And that can be a real driver because we all want to be good at something. Yep. And that can then maybe fuel one's love of learning. And then the last piece, which I don't know that gets talked about as much in the literature, Josh, as it should, but I think relatedness is a, is a really big part. We were just talking about the team. And it's important to understand that we as human beings are social creatures um, and we do have relationships. And as a part of our sporting experience, um, relationships are important, whether we are meeting new friends, working with coaches or um, maybe a doubles partner, teammates, et cetera. That's a big part of it. And, you know, I recently started working with a a young woman um, and I asked her, you know, why she plays tennis, you know, sort of the question you had said before. And I think her really like dominant motive was friends. She wasn't so into the competition, like she liked having fun, but she kept talking about how much she loved to be with her friends. And um, I think it's interesting as we listen to people talk about why they play and maybe along those lines is is trying to detect is one of those three more dominant than the other yep and and i think i i think that's a great point trying you know um as you dig as you dig a little bit deeper into into that question of why you know why you play or why you do what you do um noticing you know what which of those categories that answer um, primarily falls into. Um, and it's interesting also that you brought up this aspect of relatedness. I mean, tennis, as we've talked about countless times on this show, is an individual sport. 
Um, however, you know, whether it's a junior player playing tournaments um, and seeing the same group of kids from USTA New England each weekend, or it's the adult playing in their USTA league where they're on a team or um, somebody playing on their high school or college team, um, tennis or, or USTA team tennis team for juniors. Um, ten- tennis is often uh, an individual sport within a group setting. And, uh, oftentimes, um, you know, pe- people do pe- pe- uh, having, being around their friends and establishing their friends from their sport is one of the reasons that keeps them coming back. I mean, I even think back to, you know, so- some of the junior clinics I have coached in the past and currently coach, and it's, there's a, a definite com- camaraderie among the juniors. And I think, you know, oftentimes that's one of the reasons why they, they want to keep playing is, you know, to see their friends. Maybe it's a little rivalry that they have between, you know, them and another player. Um, but, and I, and even within the, the origin stories, um, you know, you, you, you mentioned the, those 50 kids from, from the club. I mean, I think back to that same group of kids on those Saturday nights or the, the group of kids, um, you know, whether it was USTA team tennis or the kids I'd see at the tournaments or even, you know, going into my high school and college days. Um, so I, I think the relatedness piece, even in a sport like tennis, even in an individual sport is, is huge and is, you know, under, underappreciated oftentimes. Yeah, I'd agree. And, um, even at the senior tennis level, that's, it's, I think it's a huge part of it. Um, there may be other social aspects of, you know, perhaps going out to eat afterwards, you know, so I remember in Rhode Island now where you live, they have a great summer Tuesday night tennis league. And a big part of it was the two teams would go out after the matches and, you know, have a good time. And so we, we would compete hard on the court, but then there was that camaraderie afterwards. And I think the, you know, as, as players become older um, and maybe the competition is, you know, it's still the competition is fierce, but it's not so maybe ego centric as it perhaps was earlier um there's a real sort of recognition or honor of each other as competitors there's a lot i think respect that comes as as uh, as players um you know get older and, and compete each other against each other and keep that camaraderie which i think is a really cool thing and it's you know as a um you know for those of us who are senior players it doesn't mean you, you don't need to work on your motivation um, explore that, it's, you know, um, there are a lot of great opportunities for team, uh, tennis from a, from a senior perspective, whether that's USTA leagues or things like, um, you know, the friendship cup. So here in new England, we have this thing where we play against Quebec every year. And really? it's basically from 45s to eighties. Wow. And, uh, you know, we alternate going, uh, to Quebec, they, and then they come here and it's a fantastic event, and there are lots of other events that are similar that go, uh, you know, all along the Eastern Seaboard, whether that's Atlantic Coast Cup or um, Talbert Cup. Lots of great things that you know help even senior players maintain that relatedness aspect of it. So, I'm, yeah, I think that's something we shouldn't uh, discount at all. So when you're working with players, Josh, on the concept of motivation, you ask them, you know, why they play, et cetera. Are there any other, you know, interesting questions that you like to ask them to make them think a little bit more deeply about their motivation and why they do it? Um, well, that, that's generally where I, where I start things. You know, why, how did you start playing? So if I, you know, digging a little bit into that origin story, um, why you play, what you enjoy most about the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, some of, you know, some of the experience, if you can pinpoint some um, times where you really feel like you've enjoyed the sport. Um, and then also digging, digging into the other side, um, any, you know, real negative experiences that you've had. Have you ever thought about quitting? Um, if, if the conversation starts to lead in that direction. Um, but, but really trying to dive into, um, you know, the, that main factor and the, of why of why they play, and I, I often think it's helpful, um, you know, as you said, to to write things down. So oftentimes it can be a writing exercise where um, you know give them a minute or two to write down, you know, the, their main reasons for playing, and then seeing if you can take that longer list 
and start to distill it. Okay, can we can we shorten that up a little bit? What and and until we get to a point where it's very distilled, very short, maybe one sentence for what's what's that main driving factor for why you play? And I think as we talked about a little bit, this is really important for those down moments. Um, tennis, like any sport, is going to have its ups and downs, and particularly when things aren't going well, maybe you're in a losing streak. Maybe you're injured or struggling to come back from an injury. That's really where it's important to have that crystallized um, reason for why you play um, when you know things haven't been going well in recent memory. Um, something that you can look back at for, okay, I play because this is a way that I can really demonstrate um, that I can make the most of my abilities or make my parents proud. Or whatever, or whatever that that underlying reason is, or one of those underlying reasons, um, when you're struggling to get back on the court after three and a half months, and you know the future looks bleak, and you're not sure when you can get back out there, the you you need that reason to keep on going because it can be very easy to just say, you know, what? this isn't worth it. So you, the, in order to balance the scales the other way, you need to be able to easily look back at that reason. Maybe it's that reason why you started playing or that reason why at this point in your life, why you play. Um, and, and sometimes that shifts over time. Sometimes, you know, you started playing as a six-year-old for one reason, because it was sport was so much fun. And then now you're, you know, in college or now you're in your forties um, and the reason why you play is something totally different, but having a clear idea of that is in my view, from my experience is really what pushes you past those, um, those lower moments, those uh, you know, we talk about peaks and valleys, those, you know, those challenging times, having that um, really clear reason for why you want to keep on going. Yeah, and I think um, it made me think about one of those aspects of self-determination theory, the whole competence mastery piece, because I think if we are able to understand that when we play tennis, if we can connect ourselves more with trying to master the sport more so than just about winning. Yep. Um because let's face it, you, you a lot of people will come to you and say, oh, "I love to win, and I want to win, and I want to beat that guy, and etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And again, this is not about a hundred percent focusing on mastery and never focusing on winning, right? There's some balance there, but probably most people are skewed too far toward. Uh, you know, focusing on sort of just winning and beating other people, right? The more ego involved piece. Yep. And that overall, you know, eventually that can lead to a loss of enjoyment. And we've seen that in, in sports psychology research. So I think it's really important that we begin to connect our purpose, our motivation to pursuing becoming the best that we can become. And I remember having this conversation with them. Um, some players on the Bryant University men's team a few years ago. And I, they were completely skeptical about my point that if you were to focus simply on by being the best player you could be, the results would take care of themselves. Yeah. You don't need to just try to beat that one guy or whoever or just want to beat guys. Because if it really was about that, and I, I kind of threw this back at them, I, I said, well – why are you here then? Because you're not going to win all your matches here. If it's really just about beating other people, why didn't you go to some school that wasn't quite as good or junior college or some other place where you would be undefeated? And then the answer becomes, well, I want to challenge myself. All right, now we're talking. Mm -hmm. Why do you want to challenge yourself, right? And then we, we eventually get to a place where um, that they get it that it isn't just about beating other people. And if we can flip the script and understand that if I focus just on being the best I can be, then, then beating people 
will just be a byproduct of that. And I remember one player, he was extremely skeptical as a freshman, but he, he, he came to me, I think his junior year, and he said, you know all that stuff you've been saying the last couple of years? I, I get it. I get it now. So it took two years for him to get it. But if if one – and you know what? His last couple of years, he was – he worked harder. Yep. He made a lot of he made a lot of di- uh, changes in his game that were um, much more in line with somebody who's just trying to be a better player, not to somebody who's trying to beat the kid next to him in practice. And I think one way to help people understand this, and this is a this is a question I give as part of getting people to think a little bit more uh, about motivation: is what is your definition of success? Yep, I like that. Right. At the end of this career or whatever, you know, what how are you going to look back and say that? And for me, I like sharing the the John Wooden definition of success. For those who don't know who John Wooden is, he was a basketball coach at at UCLA. UCLA, I think won about 10 national titles when he was the coach there, I think including 7 in a row. And um one of the things that he is famous for is not talking about winning. He was extremely process focused, extremely focused on the details all the way down to how to put on your socks and tie your shoes, that level of detail. And so his he has a good definition of success, or at least one I like to share. And uh, I just want to share with all of you. So he says, success is peace of mind that is the direct result of self-satisfaction in knowing you did your best to become the best that you are capable of becoming. And I think that there are a couple of concepts in there, Josh, that are, are, are cool. One, it doesn't talk about winning. Yep. It just talks about you becoming the best that you can become. We both know that there is a genetic component to success at the professional level. It's not 100% choice. It's not 100% hard work. Um, you know, I could work my butt off. I'm not going to become number one in the world. Just too short. A lot of, a lot of things wrong. (laughs) So, um, but can I become the best I can become? Well, that, that gives me something more to shoot for. I think the first part though is really key. And I remember when I first heard this, I probably in my, mm, or when it first maybe resonated was when I was in my early thirties, the first part where it says success is peace of mind. And I thought about that. I was like, Hmm, I don't know that I have that. You know, my early 30s, I don't think I had that. I don't think I had this peace of mind that I had done everything I could. So there was some regret there. And so from that, though, I came up with a new motivation, sort of a new mission, which was to make the second half of my career better than the first. I like that. Um, And it all became about mastery and doing all the little things that I could do. you know, to, to become better. And the results, you know, in my mind for, for who I am, I uh, have, have, I'm very satisfied with, you know, since 30, maybe that was about 32. So in the next 20 years, I think it's been a good last 20 years, better certainly than my first 20 years of playing tennis. And so this definition actually was very helpful in me crafting that, you know, and I tell a lot of the younger players is like, I don't want you to be like me and wake up at 32 35, 40, and say, you know what? I could have tried harder. I want you to look back and have that peace of mind that for what I, you know, for what I knew at the time, I did it. And so I think um, when we have that kind of definition of success and we can get more focused on mastery, we can actually go further in the game than if we're just thinking about winning or beating somebody else. But, you know, of course, tennis, it's so – because it's so individualistic, Josh, um, how can you not compare? How can you not say, like, I want to beat that person, you know? So it, there is a fine line there, and I'm sure you've seen this in your work with college players. Absolutely. Um, and I think tennis, it's it's a sport where it's very easy to compare because um, – More I mean, so now than ever before, right? Because rankings are – available online there's utr now you know when exactly. i played you 
you got the rankings either like once a year or once a quarter in the mail. Yeah. And now your UTR is constantly updated. It's, you know, everybody knows what your ranking is. Are you one spot above this person or one spot below that person? Um, and that actually what you were saying about, you know, really focusing on that process of being the best that you can be, um, reminded me a lot, actually brought, brought, jogged my thoughts all the way back to, um, our first interview, um, where we, we talked to Brian Barker, exactly. Um, and he'd said, you know, for some people, you might be able to reach number one in the world for somebody else. You might be able to reach number 50 in your town. Um, but what's really important is that you're doing everything within your power to be as good as you can be. And, you know, if there's two people playing there and one saying, you know, I want to just try to do my best today. Um, you know, I, I just want to be the best person, the best tennis player, the best person that I can be. And the other says, yeah, I want to do all that, but I also need to win. <laughs> who's going to, it almost makes me, makes me laugh even thinking about it. Who's going to have a better chance really when it, the, the match is on the line. Um, and I, I think also who's going to get more fulfillment out of that experience. Um, so yeah, win or lose, right? Win or win, lose. Win or, win or lose. And I, I, I think back to my own career, and there's definitely matches that I lost, but I came off court saying I, I did everything in my power to give myself a fighting chance. I had a good attitude. I was, I, I changed my strategy up. I had a plan B. Uh, maybe I didn't have my best stuff today, but I, you know, did my best with whatever I had. And other times where I maybe I've won and was not satisfied because I didn't feel that way. So, um, you know, having the, the focus on rather than just the outcome on just on winning on doing my best on that particular moment, that particular day, um, I, you know, I, I've have found has led to greater fulfillment whenever I have managed to have that, that perspective. Yeah. Um, I think one other question that I like to ask, and it also helps with uh, the developing of the mastery part of, of yeah. our motivation, and it's um, how do you want people to describe you as a competitor? And I will often, you know, put it in a scenario and say, "All right, Josh, we're let's fast forward a few years, and we're going to be enshrining you into." some sort of tennis hall of fame, whether it's USTA New England, your high school, the international, whatever. And people are going to be talking about you that weekend. What do you ideally want them to say? Yep. And I think this is also a great place to begin to introduce some of the character skills that go into being a great tennis competitor. You know, things like respect and honor and fairness along with the more individualistic traits of uh, competitiveness, determination, certainly motivated, fighting, all that stuff, you know. And um, in other contexts, I think people often think about this as like writing your own obituary. For me, from a tennis perspective, that's a bit morbid, so why not do Hall of Fame? Uh, but I, I found that to be what, – what I find interesting here is – about 25% of the time, people forget to include how they treat other people as part of their legacy. Okay. Interesting. Um, and so they're kind of maybe forgetting that relatedness piece. They're kind of forgetting um, how important it is that there, there's an interaction between you know us as opponents, but also as partners in helping each other be better. Um, or even with teammates. Um, I, I think it's important to understand that the word competition you know, is based on the Latin. That doesn't mean to strive for against. It's, you know, the Latin definition, the Latin word competere means to strive for with. And it's, in, you know, which is, a, I think, a, a good way to look at, even in tennis, you know, Josh, if you and I have a great match, I made you better. You made me better. I should be thankful that you pushed me. You know, in that way, it's almost like this cooperative competition 
type of thing that we're also seeing in other sports on individual sports where people are training together. Can we cooperatively compete so that we're both raising our levels and we're achieving levels we never could have gotten to without each other? You know, and sometimes it's a little bit too much adversarial in tennis. I, I, absolutely. I mean, I, to, to me, in an ideal world, that um, reminds me of, you know, sort of that academy format or, um, where, you know, people are – many players have the same goal of reaching the highest levels um, of the sport. Maybe it's the pro game. Maybe it's um, college scholarship, whatever it may be. Um, but day in, day out, they're all pushing each other. They're, they're competing, but they're competing to each raise their own level. Um, and I think you, you see that also in, in college form. I, I, I realize you asked about, um, you know, what, the, the college setting, um, and I didn't really um, respond to that last time. But, um, yeah, I, I think so, certainly in a college setting, you see that as well, where, um, you know, I, we, we've talked a lot about match play being an important piece of, um, you know, the college tennis environment, um, really, I would say for all tennis players, they should be playing matches to, you know, continue testing themselves and challenging themselves. But, um, I, I think college tennis is a, um, ideal and one an ideal environment where, um, people are on the same team. They're all, you know, fighting for the same thing. They have shared goals, but they're also pushing each other and challenging each other so that they can raise each other's games and get to that highest level possible. Um, so I, I think what, you know, any sort of team environment that we, we talked about that related piece is a great, um, chance for players to push each other so that they can raise each other's game and also raise their own games, um, day in and day out. So as we think about, you know, motivation, maybe we'll kind of start to circle back to, you know, what yeah. do we want the listeners to get out of this? Um, what do you think are some, things like if you're a player listening to this that he or she could do to increase their levels of motivation Um, because i think it's we should think of it like a skill you know it's like there are always new levels of skills is there can we be pushing new levels of motivation yeah i mean i i think to to me it's it that, that that first step really that most important step is to really um, be, be clear about, about your reasons for, for playing, for being out there. Um, I, I think knowing that, um, improving at anything takes time and, and hard work and that you're not going to be willing to, to do that over the long term unless you are very clear with yourself about why it is that you do what you do. Um, so I think that that first thing is, you know, doing a little bit of soul searching and, you know, it, it takes time and maybe, you write it down one one day and you revise it and you distill it a little bit and then it changes and you crumple it up and you start again. But starting that process of, you know, really trying to dive in deep and uh, figure out, you know, why it is that you play. Why do you enjoy to play? What are your main driving factors for playing? Um, so I, I, I would I would start there. And I think as as players do that and then they also think about their training is to make sure that as part of that intrinsic motivation, that that internal reward, that we're keeping it, we're keeping like enjoyment as being an important part of it. Absolutely. Um, whether we call it fun or enjoyment, I'd say probably enjoyment is a better, depending on your level, right? So if you're just beginning and you're five or six years old, it's probably going to be more fun. But as you get better and become more competitive, it's probably more about enjoying the process, enjoying the struggle, et cetera. And that uh, should be something we, we try to keep in there. And maybe even also enjoying training. Um, so like from a coaching perspective, if we're setting up the motivational client, we want to make sure that training is not super repetitive so that the players are getting stale. And even as you're, if you're training on your own, make sure you're mixing it up, doing different things so that uh, it can help you stay more motivated. Um, so I, I think we want to make sure that we, however we write that sort of like purpose and passion and why piece, try to keep enjoyment somewhere in the mix there because that's important. We want to make sure we're enjoying it. Otherwise, why? You could go reflect that question. Why are we doing it if it's not enjoyable? Right. 
right? So. No, that I I think that's a great point. I think that people often lose sight of that. Where, as we talked about, you know that that five year old that's playing for the first time, um, and they just love hitting hitting the tennis ball. Um, it has nothing to do with winning. It has nothing to do with what other people think about them or you know their image as I am a, a tennis player. But they just enjoy the sport. And I think the more that you can, um, you know build that in and remember that um as, as you train as you get more serious um as you you know continue playing throughout your life um I, I i agree that that's a very important piece and you know within my own coaching um i i i, I try to you know maybe sometimes better than others but that, try to um include that as well where if somebody's i mean i i, I would say at, at a core level if somebody's not enjoying something how much longer are they going to keep coming back? How much longer are they going to keep playing? Um, where if they enjoy the process, they're going to keep coming back and they're going to keep getting better. So that's sort of just at a very basic level. Um, but no, I, I, I agree. I think, um, you know, that enjoyment piece and, you know, as you said, mixing it up, keeping it new and interesting is, is very important for um, as coaches or, or professionals helping people um, remain motivated and remain interested um, in, in that, that gradual, slow improvement process. Yeah. Yeah. Cause the tennis obviously is a, it's a difficult sport to master. It takes a, it takes a long time to get there. So um, maybe just to summarize it for people, you know, uh, again, the self-determination theory, just the three things to, to try to focus on when you're thinking about, why you play and bringing some purpose. So number one is, is autonomy, making sure that you, you're owning the process. You've got some passion for it. Um, I think from a tennis perspective, especially as an individual sport, that whole mastery competence thing is super important. Yeah. Um, but that's, that is like our real primary pursuit. It's like our big purpose is to become uh, a master of this sport. And then we can't discount the relatedness aspect of playing tennis. It's such an important part, whether that's your relationship with your coach, your parents, your significant others, family, friends, the tennis community in general. Um, there's a lot of good sort of motivational power that, that comes out of that. Anything that you want to add to that, Josh? Um, I mean, maybe um, as we, we start to wrap up, I mean, I think, I think we, we talk a lot about goals. We talk a lot about goals as, as sports psychology professionals, coaches often will bring up goals. Um, but I think these goals have to be underlied um, by motivation and by really what your driving factor is for achieving those goals. If you have a certain, if you have a goal to become whatever, number one player in the world, let's say, or uh, the number one player at your club for your age group, then that's that's great, but why? Why is that your goal? Why are you motivated to achieve that? Um, so, as you know, as we've talked about, digging a little bit deeper into that, um, and you know, having having that clear intention, um, and uh, is is going to be a key to getting to that point that, that you want to um, achieve as a as a player, athlete, or performer of any kind. Yeah. I think it's good that you brought up goals because if we go, some people might say, well, hey, should I have goals like that if it's about that definition of success, trying to be the best I can be? And right. I would say, yeah, you still should because those types of goals are like milestones along your journey to becoming that. So you're essentially giving yourself like some targets along your journey toward becoming that. So I think it's totally fine that we have those types of outcome-based goals. And then, of course... We want to work into all right. What's the process for creating, getting to that that goal, right? So I think that's a, that's a good point. Goal setting is we don't necessarily want to look at it as the you know a panacea for everything in in sports psychology. Sometimes it is, um, but I think it is important to uh, that it has a place in there. And it's certainly a part of uh, part of motivation. So, well, that's our show for today. Thank you, Josh. It was a really good discussion. I thought on on motivation. Um, if you have any feedback or questions for us, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag of tennisiq. 
Also, we'd like you to subscribe to the show on your platform of choice. Um, We're also on YouTube. Um, So when you subscribe, you get notified of new episodes. Uh, You can also check out our Instagram page where we've been putting up uh, links to our episode. Um, And thanks again for listening. And we'll talk to you soon in our next episode. Thank you.